This is People Every Day. Coming up... I'm thinking this is an opportunity to talk to the guy that started the whole industry. Apple CEO Tim Cook gets candid about his world and the company that's changed the world. Plus, an update on the devastating shootings in the Atlanta area and Demi Lovato's new shocking revelations. It's March 17th. Hello, folks. This is People Every Day, presented by Macy's. I'm your host, Janine Rubenstein, and I am here to bring you the news you need to know this St. Patty's Day Wednesday. Hope you're wearing green. Stick around until later in the show because People's Deputy Editor, Wendy Noggle, will be taking the reins, interviewing the guy that runs the company that's likely responsible for the device on which you're listening to me right now. (laughs) Yes, Apple CEO Tim Cook is on today talking life and tech, even though it feels like those two things are interchangeable these days. But now on to the biggest news that's circulating today. Very, very sad news, actually, coming out of the Atlanta area. Eight people were killed in multiple shootings carried out at massage parlors, and six of the victims were Asian, which is raising fears that the attacks could have been racially motivated amid what we know now is a time where anti-Asian hate crimes have exponentially increased. Joining me now to explain what all we do know about this terrible news is People.com crime editor Greg Hanlon. Hi, Greg. Hey, Janine. Thanks for having me on. No problem. Devastating morning. Um, just take me into the, the news. We know that there was a press conference that, that came out of, of all of this. So what did authorities say actually happened? So the authorities say the suspect um, admitted to the crimes and they asked him why he did it. And, you know, like, like all of us, uh, given this uh, rise in anti-Asian violence, um, you know, they asked him if racial animus had, had anything to do with it. And he, you know, while admitting the crimes, he denied that it was racially motivated. And he told authorities, um, you know, in so many words that that he uh, allegedly had a a sex addiction and had frequented some of these places in the past. Um, And one of the, uh, you know, one of the the law enforcement people uh, that spoke uh, said that uh, he he described the massage uh, spas as a temptation for him that he wanted to eliminate. Wow. And and so even even in that, in his uh, semi-confession, I guess, at this stage, um, that doesn't necessarily eliminate the possibility that there were, you know, racist undertones as well, right? Definitely not. Anytime, you know, of the eight people killed, six of them were Asian women, um, especially in this climate uh, that's, you know... Uh, above and beyond troubling and obviously raises, you know, questions about, you know, how much he values the life, uh, of these, of these people. He, he also indicated that he, um, had he not been caught, he was planning to go to Florida and, and perpetrate more shootings. Wow. And, and, and he was, like you said, that was pretty speedy. He was captured Tuesday. Do we know how that came about? Interestingly, his own parents um, had seen uh, surveillance footage released through the media uh, that he was the suspect and that they were looking for him. And his parents cooperated with law enforcement. And, you know, according to the you know law enforcement officials at the press conference, his parents were, 
you know, as, as horrified as, as all of us um, are at, at, you know, at what he did. What about the victims? Is there any news? I know sometimes it takes a little while to notify families and, and things like that. Do we know anything else about these women? And, and there was another person wounded as well. So a ninth person mm-hmm. was wounded, right? Uh, that that's correct. Not much is known um, about the victims. Um, the uh, South Korean consulate in Atlanta um, identified four of them as being, you know, uh, either from Korea or kind of, you know, ethnically uh, Korean. But as as far as their, you know, identities, their families, um, you know, kind of more uh, personal information, we we don't know that at this time. So, Greg, do we know? how he got these guns when when he got them authorities said that he obtained the gun use in the shooting hours before you know the initial the initial shooting which just goes to show the the ease with which you can get guns in this country and you know uh, this guy's alleged impulsiveness um it's really a you know ongoing dangerous situation yeah Hoping that, you know, the justice is served in this case and, and, and of course, that that ninth person is is OK. Um, we will definitely keep looking to see, you know, how this all pans out. Greg, thank you for walking me through that. Janine, thanks for having me. Now it's time to dig into what's bubbling up in entertainment news today. And senior editor Melody Chu is here to help. Hi, Mel. Hi, Janine. So just a warning before we get into it. Some of the stories we're about to talk about contain pretty graphic descriptions of of sexual assault and the trauma surrounding that. So just to flag you up before we get into it. But uh, more has come out now about Demi Lovato's Dancing with the Devil docuseries. It's it's a tell-all that she's releasing on YouTube March 23rd, and it just premiered at South by Southwest Film Festival. And as we knew, there's some truly painful stuff surrounding her childhood and the circumstances of her 2018 overdose. So, Mel, walk me through the latest revelations. It was shocking. And the further along you get, the more um, she shares, and it's very heartbreaking. She opens up about... Um, you know, being raped at 15. That's how she lost her virginity. And that was absolutely just shocking um, for me to hear. And then uh, she also revealed that her drug dealer um, violated her the night of her OD. So it's a lot um, that she's sharing with the world now. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay, let's, let's go back. She, she was, she was 15 and, and she said that this, was in the midst of her big Disney career. I mean, she is, you know, filming a movie at the time. Um, And so what did she say about her attacker? So I'm sure you remember, but so much was made out of these teenage girls' virginity. And it's so creepy, especially, you know, now in the Me Too era to even consider anyone talking about any 14, 15, 16 year old virginity. But at that time, all the Disney kids were coming out and saying, I'm saving myself for marriage. And so at that time, she said she had been, you know, hooking up with with her attacker. um, But she made it very clear, she said that she wasn't ready to have sex. And um, that's, you know, he didn't listen. And um, it turned into a rape. And that's how she lost her virginity. And he was in he was in that bubble as well. He 
Yeah. So she didn't give too many details, but she did say that she reported it to adults who did nothing. Um, whoever the attacker was went on to still be in the film that he was going to be in. So then she had to see, you know, this guy in a movie um, and see nothing happen. And, and then, you know, that's when she really started to internalize everything. And so that's, that's one thing that I think she's really kept close um, to herself for now. She had never been ready to open up and yeah, it's just, it's really, really sad. And, and you can see why she's, you know, she's had, gone through so much and yeah. she, she, she struggled so much. I mean, the stuff about her overdose, of course, we remember reporting that out and it was horrific, but now we're getting even more texture to that and what she went through around that night. So, so tell me about that. Yeah. So a, a couple of her friends um, who were, who are still close with her now, um, but they really saved her life then. Her assistant is the one who found her. Her assistant kept knocking on the door. She wasn't answering. So finally um, they went in and Demi was blue. She said like she was on the brink of death. And um, I think her doctor even said in the, in the documentary that had she been found five to 10 minutes later, she would be dead. We wouldn't have Demi right now. And even, and even her, her, her memory, um, you know, of, of the night before that just, Going into, uh, I think she said something about how she had told the doctors after she came to in the hospital that, you know, my my attacker, um, well, she didn't even name him as an attacker. She said, I had consensual sex that night. And then it wasn't until later that she realized no, I, I was in no state of having, you know, consensual sex. She, her friend said that she had heroin that was laced with fentanyl. So, so, and that's something that I think is so courageous of her is that she speaks with such clarity about her sexual assaults. And that's something I think a lot of women and men need to hear. So yeah, she said she had a vision of, you know, her attacker being on top of her, but she just wasn't in any mindset to know what had happened. And then later on, yeah, like you said, she realized what had happened. And and I love that you spoke to why, because a lot of people were saying, you've done docuseries before, Demi. Why, why put this all out there? Why bring up all this heartbreak? But you would say it is serving her and, and her recovery, right? I think she feels very free for the first time in years. She's finally telling her side of the story. People look at Demi and um, you may look at her as a victim or as someone just, yeah, she's been through it, but she wants people to know like there's healing that can be found and she wants to help others too. For sure. Okay, now now let's talk about someone making history. Actor Elliot Page is now the first transgender man to be put on the cover of Time magazine. It's their new double issue out now with Elliot rocking jeans and a sweatshirt behind the cover line. I'm fully who I am. So Mel, help me remind folks who Elliot is and and his work. And then let's get to, you know, what he says in this groundbreaking interview. Yeah. Well, Elliot Page, gosh, I I feel like he is one of the most talented actors of our generation, right? We all met him as Juno, Juno. fell in love. Mm -hmm. Yes. Fell in love with Juno. Um, And then was it earlier this year or last year? I mean, who knows about time these days, but he came out with, he, he, uh, you know, revealed that he is transgender and wrote this very moving um, uh, note. And the wave of love that came for Elliot was just so overwhelming. I think um, I read that his social media following like jumped like 400,000 yeah. people in a day. Yeah. Crazy. And it just shows you how much people are craving to see someone like themselves in someone like Elliot. I mean, what 
a brave way to come out. And, you know, like we were saying, we fell in love with Elliot and Juno, but that was part of what made, you know, who he really is so difficult. Yeah, he talked about really struggling with those more feminine roles. I think one other thing that was very striking is that he's educating so many people, um, including his own loved ones. He said, you know, his his mom did struggle while he was growing up. He He's known since he was, gosh, nine, nine or 10 that, you know, he identified like he he's a he's a man he's a boy and um his mom struggled with it but now uh, she's so proud of him and the the waves he's making and being fully himself and and Elliot says you know that means so much that that someone like my mom can have that kind of growth and that's yeah. what you want yeah. And, and like you said, representation matters. He was inspired by Laverne Cox and, and Janet Mock. And, and, and that really pushed him to, you know, just walk in his, his full self. So good news. We're ending on good news. Today was a heavy one, Mel, but, but we're ending on some, on some good stuff. So thank you so much for taking me through it all. You don't want to miss what's next. Bringing you Apple CEO Tim Cook. Stay tuned. everyone, I'm Sid Evans, Editor-in-Chief of Southern Living and host of Biscuits and Jam. Since 2020, I've been interviewing musicians, chefs, authors, and other Southern icons about their family traditions, their faith, their favorite meals, and of course, what it means to be Southern. And I'm excited to announce Season 5 of our award-winning podcast. Join me every Tuesday for new conversations with some of the most interesting and influential Southerners around. Be sure to follow Biscuits and Jam where Wherever you get your podcasts. You can also find us online at southernliving.com slash biscuits and jam. It's not often on People Every Day that the leader of one of the biggest companies in the universe sits down, kicks up his feet, and just lets it flow. But today is that special day. Deputy Editor Wendy Noggle scored an interview with Apple's CEO Tim Cook that is equal parts revelatory and inspiring. Listen in as she helps peel back the layers on his life and career journey, as well as where things are going in this increasingly tech-driven world. And no, no. He didn't reveal the next iPhone drop. (laughs) Here's Wendy's interview. I know you said that when you were going to, you thought about going to Apple, people kind of thought you were crazy, but that it was the sparkle in Steve Jobs' eyes that, that said you had to do this. How do you learn to trust your gut on decisions like that? You know, that was an interesting time for me because I was only at Compaq a short period of time. And Compaq was the number one personal computer company in the world at that time by market share. And it was widely thought that it would have a great future. That, that did not come to pass. Uh, and everybody thought that Apple was headed out. Uh, you know, the, Michael Dell had just made a comment that if he were the CEO of Apple, he would uh, close it down and give the remaining funds to the shareholders. And so when I got the call, it, it sort of, the first call kept me, uh, caught me by surprise. And the second one, I'm thinking, this is an opportunity to talk to the guy that started the whole industry. Obviously, I should go talk to him. And as you say, it was just moments into talking with him that I wanted to do this. I could hear that voice in my head, go west, young man, go west. 
and uh, you know, the rest is history now. And, and when Steve passed in 2011, that was obviously a very sad time. You know, I wonder how you coped and also then how you stepped into these really big shoes and made the role your own. It was heartbreaking because it, the, and it was surprising. And I know that sounds strange, but when, I, I think when you, I've come to, to realize that when you love someone and you, they pass, you kind of, you kind of convince yourself uh, that they're going to keep bouncing. And then one time he didn't bounce. And, and you know, the, my main focus at that time was kind of getting the company through the mourning process. And uh, I, I have never tried to fill his shoes, uh, not on day one and not, not on uh, year 10, uh, because I've always thought they were not fillable by anyone for, for one thing. And then, and then secondly, I think all of us, the challenge we all have is to be the best version of ourselves and to keep pushing and pushing the boundaries of what the best version of yourself is. And, and so that's what I've done. And he helped me with that. When he told me he wanted me to be CEO, he said uh, that he never wanted me to ask what he would do. It's such a great gift that he said, kind of do it your way. I mean, what there is that ethos of think different at Apple. How do you think work will look different? I mean, you guys revolutionized the workspace and, and opening up offices in ways they hadn't been before. So what is it going to look like when we all go back to work? Well, we're still figuring that out, to be honest with you. But my, my, my gut says that uh, for us, we're still very, it's still very important for us to, to physically be in touch with one another. Uh, because collaboration isn't always a planned activity, and you really need to be together to do that. So I think it'll be sort of a, I'll call it a hybrid kind of environment, but largely I think that we're gonna be back at work again, and I can't wait until that happens. Speaking of the pandemic, it's been a pretty dark year for many Americans, um, and yet I know that in August you told Vogue that you were still very hopeful. Um, what is giving you hope right now? Young people. Uh, when, I, when I talk to the younger generation, this is a generation that uh, believes in making a difference in life. You know, I don't see young people arguing about whether it exists or not. I see them talking about what to do about it. Uh, racial equity and justice, I see them really working on advancing it. And, and so when I, when I talk to them, I get, I get really, really hopeful. I think it was in 2014 you said that you don't see yourself as an activist, and yet you've taken on social justice issues, um, environment, LGBTQ, um, immigration. Do you feel like an activist now? I, I don't, because I, when I think of an activist, I, I think of somebody who's uh, sort of 24 by 7, and I'm also leading a company. And but what, what I found is a way to intersect these two things, you know, and so we work on things that are policy, not politics. We steer clear of politics. And so the, the things that you just uh, called out, things like climate change, these are policies at the end of the day. Immigration is, is a policy. Um, racial equity and justice is a policy. Privacy, 
our policies. And so th that's kind of how I look at that. Obviously, you were the first uh, Fortune 500 CEO to come out as openly gay. And you said at the time you really did that for kids who, who wanted to be able to see a path for them. What have you heard from kids or what have you seen the impact of that? Unbelievable, to be honest with you, far beyond what I would have ever predicted. Uh, there are very few days that go by that I don't get uh, some level of communication, whether it be email or, or so forth, from kids that are, uh, maybe they're, in, they're struggling, maybe they're uh, being even pushed out by their own family. Maybe they're being bullied at school. And uh, all of these things are big, but, but seeing someone else that uh, is out front and that can, uh, they, they see that, that they can rise and do different things in life, that there's not a pre preset cap on what they can achieve, I, I think it really makes a difference. Absolutely. Um, and obviously, technology this year has been more vital than ever. It's enabled us to work remotely. It's enabled our kids to go to school remotely. And yet, it's also been more disruptive in a lot of ways. How do you think we can find a balance of, of for lack of a better way to put it, the good and evil of, of technology that we're grappling yeah, with? Yeah, technology, as it turns out, doesn't want to be good. And it doesn't want to be bad either. It doesn't want to be anything. It, it's sort of in the hands of the creator of whether it becomes good or, or evil. And f so for us, we've never done things like, um, we don't care how much our products are used. We've never set a goal to say, I want my, that product used five hours a day or, or whatever it is. We just want it to be there when a person needs it. And I think in, in far too many cases, some technology, the goal was to make sure that it's used, that it, it, that it begins to consume somebody's life and, and so forth. That should never be the goal of technology. How do you set yours and set your own limits on it as the head of, a, of Apple? Let me tell you, I found out things that I didn't think I was doing that I'm doing. You know, I found out I was getting a lot more notifications than I need. Uh, yeah, I, and I, I started looking at that and saying, you know, do I really need to get hundreds of notifications every day? And so I, I think products like Screen Time that illuminate this and make it transparent to us how much we're using and in what kind of ways can make a huge amount of difference. I know you've said that the biggest impact that Apple will have is, is on health, which people think of it more of as a technology company. And, and so I would love for you to expand on that. Yeah, when we came out with the watch, uh, we were focusing on very much on the fitness side initially, along with, of course, notifications and communication. And then we started getting into the heart. It dawned on us, I think, that your car has all of these warning lights in it. And we thought, the watch can do this for the heart. And so we began to monitor the heart. And, and we added to that as time went on. And I started getting an enormous number of notes. Literally no day goes by that I don't hear from customers reaching out saying, I discovered I have AFib from my, from my watch. I didn't know it. And of course, we've taken that even further now with, with SPO2 and, and other, other things that we're monitoring. 
Uh, you can do an EKG right on your wrist now. And I just think the democratization of healthcare, getting you and I to think of our health as our responsibility and not something that we outsource to our doctor, this is a big idea. That was People's Wendy Noggle interviewing Apple CEO Tim Cook. For more on him, head over to People.com. And now, my friends, a little something to make you smile brought to you by Irish singer Chloe Agnew from the group Celtic Woman. Just listen. I keep thinking about the cobble streets where I fell, fell in love with all. That is Chloe singing her new song, Written on My Heart, that she posted to social media in honor of St. Patrick's Day. And it was inspired by a quote from Irish poet James Joyce that reads, When I die, Dublin will be written on my heart. Well, guys, have a great one. And may the road rise up to meet you. A little Irish quote I found. (laughs) Talk soon. (laughs) 